Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are still in Ephesians 3. At the end of last week, we got as far as verse 14 and the phrase, I bow my knee before the Father. And though I wanted to extrapolate on that idea more, since I was working against the clock, we just reached that point and then went home. The advantage that I have is that each week when I go home, if God is kind to me, he lets me come back the next week and pick up where I left off. And so that's what we're going to do. There are really two reasons in life to bow the knee before God. The most difficult of all human emotions for humans to actually achieve in this lifetime is contentment. It's very difficult to find a human who is actually content with their circumstances. Last week, what we saw out of Philippians 4, we looked at verses 11 through, I don't know, 15, 19, stopped somewhere in there. And what we saw was Paul saying, whatever his situation, he had learned to be content. He knew how to be abased. He knew how to abound. He knew how to suffer lack. He knew how to be full. And he found that whatever situation he was in, he could be content because he could do all things through Christ who strengthened him in order to get through all of those various different situations. That is not something that Paul just naturally knew. That is something that Paul had to learn. What we know about the Apostle Paul when we first meet him historically, he's out killing Christians. He's an arrogant man. He's a powerful man. He's a man who's full of himself. We know that because he says, I, before the law, was blameless, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. If he could walk around thinking that about himself, he was an arrogant fellow. And he was out persecuting and killing Christians. Then later we find him admitting that he is the chiefest of sinners. And what he cites as the reason for his assessment that he is the chiefest of sinners is that he did persecute the church of Jesus Christ. And so that's a change. That's a huge change. And that's a change that he learned through the things that he suffered in this lifetime. And he had a difficult life. And he had to learn to subject himself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's something that we all have to do. If God loves you, if you belong to Christ, he will teach you 
how to humbly put your head down in the dust before him, how to bow the knee to him, how to be subject to him, because after all, he is the high and holy and perfect God, and you are a depraved sinner. And so if you get the relationship correct, you know that you ought to be subject to him and that you ought to bow the knee to him in recognition of the difference between you and him. As you look at the theology that Paul writes about, some of it is just heartbreaking to me. I mean, here's a man who, when he was on the Isle of Malta, did remarkable miracles healed people of their sicknesses, was bitten by a poisonous snake. And the locals there all knew that when somebody's bitten by that kind of snake, they die. And Paul just shook it off into the fire, and his hand didn't swell up, and he didn't die. And the locals decided, well, then he's some kind of God and tried to worship him. He had to say, no, it's, it's not me. Okay, so this man who had this kind of healing ability, who had this ability to do these kinds of miracles, who knew full well that it was Christ Jesus working through him, empowering him to do these astounding and miraculous things, nevertheless suffered, nevertheless took 39 lashes five times in his life was stoned, was left for dead, was in prison, fasting oftentimes, shipwrecked day and a night in the sea, went through all that and finally writes about his thorn in the flesh that he says is a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. You get to the end of the book of Galatians and he says to the church at Galatia, if you could have, you would have taken out your own eyes and given them to me implying that he was struggling with blindness. Some commentators have assumed that the blindness was the thorn in the flesh that he was dealing with, struggling with his own eyesight, which makes sense after the number of beatings that he took and everything that he'd been through. So he goes to God and he three times asks God to take it away from him this thorn in the flesh, this messenger from Satan sent to buffet him after having done these miracles to bring health and welfare to other people. He goes to God on his own behalf and says, do this for me. Take this away from me. Three times. And the answer every time is, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, bow the knee. Recognize who I am, recognize who you are, subject yourself to me, I know what I'm doing. So it caused Paul to say that the suffering that he endured in this lifetime was because of the greatness of the revelation that was given to him. So it was given to him, the suffering was given to him to keep him humble so that he wouldn't get raised up in pride because he recognized the relationship and he recognized the necessity that he humble himself down on his knees in the dirt before God. That is an essential ingredient of what it is to be truly genuinely Christian. To be biblically Christian is to recognize who God is, who you are, and to subject yourself before God.
The benefit of doing that is you'll reach contentment. You'll reach the peace that passes understanding. You'll reach the point in your life where no matter what happens, you recognize that it is either an astounding blessing from God and you're thankful for it, or if it's a difficulty in your life, you'll remember that that's the same God who got you through everything else in life and he'll get you through this too. Worst case scenario, it might kill you. And then you go home. And then your faith becomes sight. Because of the goodness and the grace and the mercy, the unending kindness and love of God. This morning we're going to talk about love. We're going to talk about sacrificial love. We're going to talk about the kind of love that God has for his people and that he expects his people to have for each other. But when we say the word love, it's easy for us to think of kind of emotional love, kind of Beatles-type love. Love, love, love. All you need is love. That's not the kind of love that the Bible is talking about. The Bible is talking about sacrificial love and that unending, unerring love of God that doesn't change just because you might mess up. You know how we are. We're all kind of legalists at heart. And so if we have a good day, we think, man, I'm doing good. God must love me. I have been out there declaring him to people and helping people and doing all the good stuff. And God must really think that I'm a handful of aces at this moment. And then the next day you goof up and you do something bad and you realize that you're still just a sinner. And have you ever caught yourself thinking, how can God love somebody as miserable as me when I could know the truth? And then yesterday I even did things I was walking in in accordance with what I claim to believe. And then today I end up here doing this. That's why it's good to know that the love of God is based on the character and nature, the unchangeableness of God, and that his love does not wax and wane according to how you behave. His love is based on the fact that his son has already finished the work necessary to save you utterly and completely so that you can stand before God spotless and blameless He has taken your sin and your rebellion and cast it as far as the east is from the west. And Paul's going to say he does all of that because he loved you before the foundation of the world. Wrote your names down in the Lamb's Book of Life. The motivating factor, according to Paul's theology, not just here in Ephesians, but throughout the New Testament, the motivating factor for why God did what he did And why he is still doing what he's doing for you and on behalf of you is because of his great love wherewith he loved us. That's why he sent his son to the planet. That's why his son gave his life. That's why he determined to save you before the foundation of the world. And that's why you're going to end up in glory forever with him because of a love that you can't begin to comprehend. Because it's not like our love. You know how we love. We say, I'll scratch your back as long as you'll scratch mine. I'll love you as long as you love me. We make promises and vows. I'm going to love you forever. And then that person does something we didn't expect. And we go, okay, my love for you is slipping now. 
I don't love you as much as I once thought I did. Our love changes. Our love is malleable. Our love depends on circumstances far too often. God's love isn't like that. God's love is a continuous, unchanging love, a sacrificial love based on the fact that he is love. Our God is love. And so because he is the very embodiment, the very totality of what love is, he is in the constant demonstration of his love toward those whom he loves. He is also, according to what we're about to see, not only the maker of heaven and earth, which is one of the most standard phrases that you'll find in the Bible to describe the truly sovereign God. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the designer of everything. He's the one that spoke everything into existence. The idea behind that nickname, the maker of heaven and earth, is so that you get some sense of the kind of God you're dealing with. He is the maker, creator, all-powerful God who is in everything and works through everything and empowers everything. He's that God. But it's easy to think of him as, yeah, he's that God who does all that big stuff. But is he involved in the minutiae? Is he involved in the little stuff of our lives? Paul is going to define him here as the God who determined when you were going to be born, where you were going to be born, into what family you were going to be born. And so even the name of your people, your tribe, your family, your genealogy, your lineage was all determined by God. You are who you are, where you are, how you are, because God decided that's how you were going to be. That's a really, really, really sovereign God. That's why you bow the knee, because he's the God who is not only the all-powerful God, but he's the God who is the all-loving God, and he is the God who is in charge and intimately involved in the minutia of this life, which means he cares about you, and he cares about your struggles, and he cares about the difficulties of this life, and he cares about the things you're going through, and therefore we bow the knee to him. We bow the knee in subjection to him because of his might and his strength. But then... The other reason, that was all reason one. You got reason one so far? Okay, so that's reason one to bow the knee. The second reason you bow the knee to that God is to pray to him, to ask him, to beseech him, to beg him, to go to him with all your problems, with all your needs, with all your worries in this life. You go to him, but you don't burst into his presence. You get on your knees. You take the position of humility. You take the position of subjection. You recognize that he is the all-omnipotent master of time, space, and reality. And you're just a worm begging for crumbs off the master's table. But you get to go to him. You still get to go to the master of the universe and say, I need help. I'm the kind of guy who believes that when you go and pray to God, you should be specific. If it's your right foot that's hurting, then go and tell him, it's my right foot. This is what I'm dealing with. This is my struggle. This is what my pain is. This is my problem. 
He knows already, but be honest with him. Go forward and say, this is my difficulty. It's my job. It's my children. It's my marriage, whatever it is. It's my finances. Tell him the truth. Be honest with him and say, if it weren't for you, I'm not going to get through this. Because he is the strength that is going to get you through these times of trouble. There is no trouble. There is no trial. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. Notice that Paul did not write at that moment, but you're supposed to be faithful at that moment. You're supposed to buck up, work harder, and make it okay for yourself. No, the answer to the problems and the trials and the tribulations of this life, the temptations of this life, the difficulties of this life, the answer is not you. The answer is, but God is faithful. Who will, with the temptation, with the trouble, with the difficulty, provide a way of escape so that you will be able to bear it. So if you take your troubles... You take your trials, you take your struggles to God Almighty and then cast them on him because he cares for you. That's what the Bible says. We roll all our troubles off our shoulders onto him and he'll carry those struggles for us because he cares for us. And that's all part of this astounding, amazing, unending love that I'm talking about. So. If you know who you're dealing with, if you know the all-omnipotent master of time, space, and reality, if you know that he is the sovereign God and the creator of all things, who's also involved in the minutiae, if you know that about him, and you know that he is the loving God who cares about you, who has designed your life for the purpose of bringing about faith that will then be exchanged for righteousness in the great economy of heaven. If you know that through his love, he is bringing about the things in this lifetime that are going to increase your faith and make you dependent on him and draw you to himself. If you know all that, bow the knee. If you know who it is you're dealing with and you know who you are, you bow the knee to him. You bow the knee in subjection. You bow the knee in prayer. You bow the knee in recognition that he's going to do whatever he's going to do, and you can't do anything about it. Because as Micah just read this morning, our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever Micah wants him to do. <laughs> yeah, that'd be wrong. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And sometimes what he's pleased to do is tough on us. Sometimes what he's pleased to do is difficult. But he has the long game in mind. We have our immediate circumstances in mind. We're going through the trouble. We're going through the struggle. We're saying, where is God in all this? We're looking for the way out. We're looking for an escape. He knows what he's doing. He's creating faith in you. He's creating dependence in you. He is making sure that you know that you're not going to survive it without him. And that is the very faith that is going to take you. It's going to accompany you all the way into your heavenly destiny and then be exchanged for righteousness. He knows that. He knows the economy of heaven and he knows what time is about. And he knows how to get his people all the way home. And so you're going to endure whatever he wants you to endure. And the answer for you is bow the knee. You getting it? Mm -hmm. yes, sir. 
because you're not going to change him and you're not going to stop him and you're not going to alter his plans. All you're going to do is make yourself sicker over the things that you worry about that you can't change to begin with. The healthy answer is bow the knee. The healthy answer is accept that this is what it is and then knowing that this is what it is, take it to God because he cares for you. Chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians, starting at verse 11. This, just like everything, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which God carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pick a topic, pick a thing, pick an event, pick a part of life. Pick anything and it falls into that category. It's in accordance with what God determined and accomplished through Jesus Christ. You can't name something that doesn't fall into that category. Because God, being God, is absolutely sovereign over whatever happens in his creation. So the introduction of the Gentiles, and even Paul being made an apostle to the Gentiles, and Paul going through the difficulties of this life, going through the trials, going through the actual physical pain that he lived with, he said is all in accordance with the eternal purpose of the one who carried out whatever he wanted to do in Christ Jesus. Okay, so that, according to Paul, is standard Christianity. Whatever you're going through in this life, whatever the difficulties, whatever the hardships, Whatever the blessings, whatever the good times, whatever you're going through in this life, it is in accordance with what God has purposed and planned for you and is accomplishing through Jesus Christ. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom, in Christ Jesus, we have both boldness and confident access Through faith in him, because of what Jesus Christ did, we now get to run to the throne of grace, crying, Abba, Father. And we get to go there boldly because of what Jesus Christ has already accomplished. And therefore, says Paul, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they're for your glory only if you have the perspective that I have been trying to describe this morning Only then can you go through the trials and difficulties of this life, especially the kind of trials and difficulties that Paul went through, and say, this is not only in accordance with what God planned, but it's for your good. It's to your glory. It has a good result. The good result makes the difficulties worth it. You can only have that perspective if you understand that everything is working in accordance to what a sovereign God has already determined to do. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. For this reason, so that you don't lose heart, so that you continue on this Christian journey no matter how difficult it might get. For this reason, Paul says... I bow my knees to the Father. Contextually, I think he's not only saying, 
I recognize my subservience to God because he keeps referring to himself as the slave of Jesus Christ, the doulos, the servant of Jesus Christ. But he also calls himself the prisoner of Christ Jesus. At the beginning of what we call chapter 3, he says it. At the beginning of chapter 4, he says it again. I am the prisoner of Jesus Christ. So he knows what his position is in the relationship between him and the glorious God. He knows to subject himself to that glorious God and to endure whatever that God has determined for him and bow the knee. But then while he's on his knees, he's praying. And the interesting part is the prayer that he's about to lay out is not, help me, this is hard. The prayer is, I know you're doing this for the glory of the people that I'm coming to preach you to. And so I pray for them. I pray that they will grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's astounding. Do you you see the humility of Paul, who I have to, one more time, I have to remind you, was once upon a time an arrogant, Christ-hating, church-killing guy who could brag that before the law, blameless, studied at the feet of Gamaliel, dig me. A Pharisee of the Pharisees, you don't get better than me. And now he's to the point of the hardships that I've gone through. I don't want you to lose heart just because of what I've gone through for your sake. I know it's all going to result in your glory. It's going to be beneficial to you. And I bow the knee to the Father, and I pray to the Father, and I pray to him, the one who made heaven and earth, and the one who determined the family groups of every person on the planet, the one who is involved in the macro and the micro, the one who is in charge of the heavens, and the one who is in charge of the minutia of this life. I go on my knees to go pray to him for you, the people I was trying to kill. Do you see the change that happened in his life? The transition that happened to him? And by the way, that doesn't happen naturally. That's not something he woke up one day and said, you know what I ought to do? Life just seems to be going too well right now. I think what I ought to do is put myself in harm's way. What would be the best way to do that? I'll go preach Christ, who I hate, to the Gentiles, and then the Jews will hate me. And that, yeah, that's my plan. Let's go. He didn't do that. He is the prisoner of Jesus Christ. He is the servant, the slave of Jesus Christ. And as a result, he's willing to endure whatever he has to endure to bring Jesus Christ to other people, to teach the Gentiles about salvation by grace through faith. He's willing to endure that. And so, amazingly, after laying out Three chapters of astounding doctrine and teaching so far in this letter. After laying out this depth of knowledge that he has, this learning that he got from Jesus Christ himself, after laying it out in front of them, he realizes they're not going to get it. They're not going to understand it. They have no capacity to grasp what I'm talking about. And so he prays to the Father that he would give them the ability to understand what he is telling them for their glory, for their good. That's love. 
That's sacrificial love. That's the kind of love that Paul has learned to demonstrate because he is a recipient of that kind of love. Shall we apply that? That's the kind of love that we have all received, and therefore we ought to also be examples of that kind of love in dealing with other people and telling other people about Jesus Christ and what he has done and what he has already accomplished. And if we have to suffer the slings and arrows, if we have to suffer the difficulties of this life along the way, if we have to suffer people not liking us or denouncing us for believing that, that just goes with the territory. Go tell the truth and pray to God that he will give people the ability to hear the truth. Okay, so let's read. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now he defines who the Father is. Who is he talking about? The one from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. He just said, in heaven and on earth, every group who has a common heritage or genealogy, it is determined by God. And the family they are born into and the name they are given, that family name, is all determined by God. The time of your birth, the place of your birth, the parentage you were given is all determined by God. You walk around with the last name you walk around with because that was determined by God. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it says that all those that he saves are going to be given a clean white stone with a new name on it. God's very into names. Names are very important to him. But it's also individual. It's also very singular. If he not only knows your name because he determined your name and he's going to give you a new name, that's very singular. That's all about you and God without the other billions of people that he has to deal with. So he's not only involved in the creation of all things, He's right there in the midst of things. And if he knows you by name and determined your name and calls you by name, never in the Bible do you ever see God show up, even Jesus Christ himself. They never show up and say, hey, you. They call people by name. The burning bush, Moses. He calls people by name. Abram, he called people by name. Job. Have you considered my servant Job? I mean, why would he say that? Because he knows the name of the person he's dealing with. He calls people by name because he determines people's names and he determines every family in heaven and earth and the particular designation, the particular tribal affiliation, the particular genetic line that they are a part of. He determines all that. Okay, that is Paul defining which God he's talking about. He's talking about the God who has that kind of authority and ability. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I bow my knee to him that he would grant to you, according to the riches of his glory, okay, take that parenthetical phrase for a moment and set it aside we'll get back to it that he would grant to you to be strengthened with dunamis with power 
through his spirit in the inner man. This word strength here in the Greek not only means to stand firmly, but it means to have the ability to withstand the onslaught of enemy attack. That if someone else is coming against you, you have the ability to stand firmly in who you are and what you know and not be swayed. That's the kind of strength that Paul is talking about here. And he is praying that God would grant to you, to the Ephesians, to everybody who reads this letter, and also to you individually, that God would grant you the strength to withstand Through the power of his spirit, not through you, not through your physical strength, not through your muscularity, not through your, is muscularity a word? If it's not, I just made it up, use it in a sentence later. It's not up to you getting to the gym often enough and bulking up. That's not the strength he's talking about. Here, I'll give you a terrific example that you're all going to agree with. Just a couple weeks ago, we buried Betty Blackwood. This was a fragile little woman. I mean, you had to be careful not to bump into her or you'd knock her down. But in the Lord, how strong was that woman? At her funeral, that's what everybody talked about, was her astounding faith and how she didn't just believe it, she lived it. And how she demonstrated her love for other people by how generous and kind and giving she was. And person after person talked about that. Okay, that's what Paul is describing here. Not physical strength. Because we live in these human bodies that get old and decay and eventually die. But even as our bodies are decaying and dying, the inner man is being strengthened every day as we continue to pursue our faith in Jesus Christ. And we are strengthened by God so that we can stand on what we know and we're not going to be thrown about by every wind of doctrine. Instead, we're going to be able to withstand the onslaught of this world and other people and Satan himself. We're going to be able to stand firmly in what it is we know. And that's what Paul is praying for on behalf of the Ephesians, on behalf of the Gentiles that he is writing to. He is praying that God would grant you. That's where it comes from. It doesn't come from your inner fortitude. It comes from the fact that God through his spirit, is strengthening the inner man. And that's what you really want. You can have all the physical ability that this life has to offer. But if you don't know Christ inside, if you don't have the ability to withstand the onslaught of this world, you're going to stand before God and be judged. And this life I think I can get a witness out of several people in this room. This life goes by like a vapor. I was a young, vital, good-looking, long-haired drummer just a minute ago. (laughs) It was just maybe last week. Now I'm this, as distressing as that is. And it went by like that. So whatever I've accomplished in this lifetime in terms of the physicality of my own body, it all counts for nothing 
Even Jesus said, the flesh accomplishes nothing. Nothing. So, Paul's prayer was not, I pray that you get healthy and wealthy and you have everything you want in this lifetime. His prayer was, I pray that God will give you understanding, comprehension, and that he will strengthen your inner man according to his own power through the Holy Spirit that he has placed inside you. That's Paul's prayer. I bow the knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you to be strengthened with dunamis, with power, through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the hagios, with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That's quite a sentence. Let's go back and break that down piece by piece. A minute ago, we kind of skipped over the parenthetical statement that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself. He has all the power, all the authority, and absolutely everything is at his disposal. So if he decides he's going to glorify himself, what's that going to look like? What kind of glory could God create on his own behalf? We already know that he encases himself in a light that no man approaches. You can go back and read the descriptions in Ezekiel where he shows up riding a chariot of clouds with wheels within wheels full of eyes, with emerald rainbows behind his head and angels singing about his holiness and glory. And, and that doesn't begin to say it because that was just Ezekiel trying to write it down real quick. Like, wow, what did I just see? So he gave us a few words about it. But it's hard to comprehend. It's hard to imagine. Okay, so in accordance with the vast riches of his own glory, that's how Paul is praying that God will respond to you. Not because you're so good. Not because you're worth it. But because of his own enterprise of glorifying himself. And the abundance of that glory, the riches of that glory, the multitude of that glory, and for sake of his own glory, Paul prays that he would give you the power, that he would strengthen you through his own power, through his spirit in your inner man. In other words, if the strength that Paul is praying for and that he is requesting God to give you, if that strength is based on the eternal riches, 
the eternal overabundance of the glory of God, how much ability does God have? You, you can't begin to comprehend it. You can't begin to think about it. You can't wrap your brain around how much glory, how much grace, how much love, how much power, how much majesty, how, how much godness does God have? You can't begin to think about that. But Paul says, in accordance with all that that he has, I hope he gives you a glimpse of himself. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power, through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I've made reference to faith already this morning. Faith is such a vital part of Pauline theology that he reaches all the way back to Abraham in the book of Galatians. And he points out that Abraham had faith and God counted it to him for righteousness. And then Paul extrapolates his theology from there, that it is our faith in what God has already said that is going to result in our righteousness. It's one of the great exchanges in the heavenly economy. Our faith in Jesus Christ is exchanged for the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that we can stand before God spotless and unblemished. That's how vital faith is in the Christian economy. Christ has to dwell in your heart through faith, but you can't do it. Faith is a gift. You go read Hebrews 12. There's a whole chapter about the heroes of faith. And what you'll see consistently is that was faith that they were given. Because Jesus, at the beginning of chapter 12 of Hebrews, is identified as the author and finisher of faith. By grace you're saved, through faith, that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man would boast. That is Ephesians 2. Paul has already laid out the theology of faith. It is a gift of God. And so here is Paul, yet again, praying to God on his knees, give faith to these people. And what will that look like? It will give them the ability to know who you are and to get some kind of glimpse, some kind of comprehension of what you are like because they can't do it. They can't understand it. They can't grasp it. So I'm praying to you that you would give them that. Do you understand that based on what we've just read, if you have any confidence in Jesus Christ right now, if you're ready to launch out of this world on faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that's because God because of his overwhelming riches and abundance of glory, out of the kindness and goodness of his grace, has decided to open your mind and your heart and your eyes and your ears so that you could have some comprehension of that, which you not only would not have but could not have if he hadn't done it for you. There's love. Not that we loved him, but that he first loved us and gave his son for us. The love of God is demonstrated in the fact that he has introduced himself to you, that you know who God is and you know that you're going to be okay eternally because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's a gift. He gave you that so that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man 
so that the end result of God being kind to you through the riches of his glory and strengthening you by his might, his power, through his spirit in the inner man, the end result is so that Christ will dwell in your hearts through faith and that you then will be rooted and grounded in love. It all comes back to that. It all ends up, the result, the beginning, the start, the end, everything in the middle, all the motivations all have to do with this love of God that he is pouring out abundantly to you and then expecting you to demonstrate that love to one another. And so love is not just peripheral to Christianity. It's not just a neat little add-on. It is rooted and grounded in love. It starts there. It takes root and establishes you. You are grounded in love. Now, the way this is placed in the Greek is in a tense where the NASB has attempted to correctly render it being. That's right now established in. It's a state of being that you are being right now rooted and grounded in love. That is not a goal for Christianity. It's not an anticipation that someday some of you might kind of love each other. It's part of what Christianity is, that you are right now being. This is your state of being, rooted and grounded in love. After all, it is the love of God that began it. It is the love of God that sustains it. It is the love of God that works through you. It is the love of God that is rooted and grounded through all of Christianity. So you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend. Should we stop there? Sure, let's. Because you can't comprehend it. You can't think about it. You can't comprehend. Does anybody know anybody who, when you talk about Christianity, they just don't get it? They have no idea what you're talking about. They just don't get it. You can open your Bible and read it to them and say, this is the word of God and this is what it says. They, They don't get it. Because human beings, by nature, by flesh, can't get it. Fleshly little dying human beings can't get the glory and splendor of an all-omnipotent holy God. The distance between you is too great. You can't comprehend it. You can't think that big. And yet Paul prays. Okay, then, God, give them a glimpse. Give them some understanding because they can't do it without you. So that you may be able, you'd have the ability to comprehend with with all the holy ones, with all the saints, so that you can comprehend and then Paul launches out into a three-dimensional world with four dimensions and says that you would comprehend What is the breadth, and what is the length, and what is the height, and what is the depth, so that you would understand how grand this grace is in which we walk, so that you would comprehend how astounding this salvation is that God has planned since before time and has already accomplished and established through Jesus Christ. Those are such 
enormous concepts that they're far beyond human comprehension, and yet here we are talking about it like, yeah, that's the way it works. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, it says right there in the Bible. Do you realize what God has done for you that you're able to read that and say, yeah, that's how it works. Yeah, I get it. God has given you astounding grace out of his amazing love. He has given you the ability to comprehend the incomprehensible so that you'd be able to comprehend and that all the saints would comprehend it along with all the hagios, the separated, the ones that are called to God so that you would comprehend the breadth and length, the height and the depth and that you would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Paul's prayer to God is give them comprehension of something that's unknowable. (laughs) Give them the ability to think big enough to comprehend the God of ages who makes everything, who's in control of the minutia, so that they could understand that you would send your son to this dirty, dusty ball so that he could die in the place of those people that you have forever loved. What? These are huge concepts. And there are people on planet Earth right now who don't get it who don't understand it, who cannot comprehend it, and you've got a glimpse of it. You have some understanding of it. And that is because God has decided to make Christ dwell in your hearts through faith so that you would be rooted and grounded in love, so that you would be able to comprehend, along with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and so that you're going to know the love of Jesus Christ, which surpasses knowledge, so that you would be filled up with all the fullness of God. Wow is right. That's his prayer. Can you see why he's on his knees? <laughs> he got on his knees before God, the one who is capable of doing all these things, and prayed that God would give understanding to the Gentiles who heard his words. He had been there teaching them. Now he's writing all the theological stuff and the doctrine yet again and sending the letter off to them. But all of that work is for naught. All of that work means absolutely nothing if God doesn't enter into it and if God doesn't give people the ability through the Holy Spirit and the love of God to comprehend the length and depth and height, the width, the grandeur of God in everything that he has accomplished through Jesus Christ so that we would know the love of Jesus Christ who gave his body for us, who took the punishment of God on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to endure it. And that just surpasses knowledge. How many years now have you heard me say, and I don't expect an answer to this question, But how many years now have you heard me say, Christianity is a revealed religion? There are a lot of people who are still talking about Christianity like they know what it is. And part of the reason that we hear them and say, well, that's not quite right. 
That's not what the Bible says. Is because they haven't been given that comprehension yet. They have reading comprehension. They might be hooked on phonics. They might be able to read the words on the page. But they don't really comprehend what's going on in the words on the page. If you have some comprehension of it, if you have some knowledge of it, if you're actually ready to cast yourself out into eternity based on your faith in Jesus Christ, that's because God has been astoundingly good to you, astoundingly gracious and kind, motivated by his own love toward you. He has already done everything necessary for your full, complete salvation and redemption, and you ought to be on your knees a slave to the one who has already accomplished all those things, the only thing that is left to do is for him to open your mind to understand what he's done. But he's already done it. Which is why in this lifetime, we reach plateaus. We reach moments where we think, okay, I got it. (laughs) Okay, I finally have some comprehension of this Christian thing. I think I'm ready to go talk to other people about it. I've got it now. And then a couple days later, you'll think, I don't know anything. What am I doing? Because this is the constant process of revelation, of God displaying himself, of God explaining himself. Jesus Christ was on the planet, the Bible says, exegeting God, explaining God to people. Why was Christ the ultimate teacher here on the planet? Why was he exegeting God and teaching the doctrine and the teaching of God to us? Why does the Bible contain so much theology and doctrine and teaching? Why? Because we don't get it by nature. We're not capable of getting it by nature. God has to not only tell us, he has to make us understand it. Steve gave me a coffee cup. And at this moment, you're thinking, what in the world does that have to do with everything you've set up until now? I saw a coffee cup one day on Facebook that said, I can explain it to you, but I can't understand it for you. And I mentioned that I liked that cup. And so Steve got me one. The amazing part of what I'm saying is, God not only explains it to you, he'll make you understand it. He'll cause you to understand it. He'll quicken your heart and your mind to understand it. Why? Because you're his. Because you belong to him. Because he has ever loved you. Because he's doing what is necessary for you. What is your position? Bow the knee to the one who is in charge of all that because the end result of it all is your glory. It's all really, really good for you. It all turns out to increase your faith in Christ Jesus so that he gets all the glory and the honor and the praise for all time. That's the master plan. God knows what he's doing. All right, so let's stick that whole sentence together now that we have pulled it all apart. Let's see if we can start at verse 14, and maybe now you can understand what Paul is getting at. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Okay, now Paul has laid out his theology, and he has laid out his prayer to God that God would give people the ability to understand the doctrine that he has laid out. And at that point, he just can't help himself, and he breaks into a doxology. I think as he's writing these words, he just can't help himself but praise and glorify God because of what he's just written down. Because he recognizes in his own words the magnificence of the God we're talking about. So he says in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond. Not just beyond, but way, way beyond. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think. This takes me back to Isaiah. God speaking in the first person says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. I am so far beyond anything you could think or anything you could ask, and yet I'm going to do it for you anyway. You might have some smidgen of comprehension. You might have a little bit of the knowledge of my word, but you haven't begun to scratch the surface because you don't even know how to ask for the stuff I'm capable of giving you. And I'm going to give it to you anyway. Because I am, after all, the glorious God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. According to the power that works within us. According to the power that works within us. What is the power that works within us? He has already defined it. He has already said that he is praying that God would grant you to be strengthened with power, with dunamis, through his spirit in the inner man. It is the Holy Spirit of God taking up residence in you that is the very power of God residing in you. And so, according to that power, his strength, his almighty power, and his spirit that works within us to him, be all the glory. He gets all the glory. He gets all the worship. He gets all the praise. And there's none left over for you. You're the servant. You're the slave. 
You're the prisoner. He gets the glory. He's in the enterprise of glorifying himself. To him be all the glory in the church. Good morning, church. How are you? I got accused this week, by the way, by somebody who in their email said, all you do is teach the Bible. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I wrote back to him and said, you know why I do that? Because the Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. And those that come to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So you've got to have faith. You've got to have faith in Jesus Christ. You've got to have that. Without that, it's impossible to please him. So where do you get that faith? Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. Why for 20 years have I stood up here pounding the Bible? That's all I got for you. Why have I been doing that? To increase your faith in Jesus Christ so that you can please God so that the end result is he gets all the glory and the way that the gift of faith is given to people is through his word. And that's why I just keep teaching his word over and over again because he gets all the glory in the church. So if I stood up here and spent the last hour telling you fishing stories and sports analogies, is that glorifying God? It might be glorifying me. I can stand up here and tap dance and tell jokes and be a reasonably entertaining guy. And I could probably pack this room if I was willing to do that. Years ago, we'd have had to buy a bigger building if I was willing to do that. But the instruction right here is, in the church, God gets all the glory. That's why we pound his word. Because that's the best way to glorify him. Because that's how we talk about him and his history and his faithfulness. And what he plans to do and what he has already accomplished. And his eschatology. And his prophecy. That's why we do what we do. So that he gets all the glory because to him is all the glory in the church. That's why there's an out called. That's why there's an ecclesia. That's why Christ is in the enterprise of building his church to glorify himself. So I don't comprehend. I don't understand why it is that groups of people get together, call themselves a church, and then don't glorify God. That would be the purpose for why the church unites the real church, the actual church, the biblical church, the church of Jesus Christ gathers together to glorify him. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations from the beginning to the end. Start at Adam, get to the last people in the new Jerusalem. All those generations in between, through all of that time, through all the courses of human events on the planet, through all of that, Jesus Christ is the sole purpose and the sole glory and the sole focus. It's all about him and glorifying him. But as if that weren't enough, 
to point out that it's from all generations here on the planet he also says and forever and ever that takes it off the planet into the heavenlies through all of the eons of time and the mystery of eternity through all of that God is glorified Jesus Christ is glorified to all generations forever and forever that's why we here at this church do what we do to glorify God because that's what's going on forever and ever that's what's going on in heaven that's what's been going on here on planet earth since the beginning because God is working out the plan that he is determined to work out to his own glory and that's what's happening and so we get on our knees we bow the knee to him and we join him in the enterprise that he has already established which is his own self-glorification therefore we are glorifying him because we are his church we are chosen out we are called to him therefore we are his slaves we know the proper relationship we know that we're supposed to be on our knees in front of him we know that we are utterly dependent on him we cry out to him we beg him because we understand who we are and who he is and that brings great glory to him and that's the purpose and the function for why the church exists I'm done you got it, got it. pretty good sentence eh <laughs> Grab your hymnal. Turn to 61 and we're going to sing, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. That deep, incomprehensible love of Jesus. That love of Jesus that passes knowledge. The deep, deep love of Jesus. When Steve gets up here, I want you to stand on your feet and sing this to the glory of God.
Jones, I would like to read the lyrics to a song. This is kind of application to what the pastor was telling us this morning. There are moments on our journey following the Lord where God illumines every step we take. There are times when circumstances make perfect sense to us as we try to understand each move he makes. When the path grows dim and our questions have no answers, turn to him, bow the knee. Trust the heart of your father when the answer goes beyond what you can see, bow the knee. Lift your eyes toward heaven and believe the one who holds eternity. And when you don't understand the purpose of his plan, in the presence of the king, bow the knee. There are days when clouds surround us and the rain begins to fall. The cold and lonely winds won't cease to blow. And there seems to be no reason for the suffering we feel. We are tempted to believe God does not know. When the storms arise, don't forget we live by faith and not by sight. Bow the knee. Trust the heart of your Father when the answer goes beyond what you can see. Bow the knee. Lift your eyes toward heaven and believe the one who holds eternity. And when you don't understand the purpose of his plan, in the presence of the King, bow the knee. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. We invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.